Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're recording today from the, oh no, I have to reinstall Windows department here. Uh-oh. Was there a story there? Uh, just a little story. I'll make it short. I was, um, I had a hard drive crash, I don't know, a few months ago, hmm. and had to reinstall Windows. And I hadn't been using um, w- Windows at the studio for podcast recording all that much, except the only thing I was using it for was recording bands and stuff. Right. So I have a band recording, and it's one of those things where it's like all day. You just keep it rolling. And That's hard work. Yeah. After, I don't know, several hours, four or five hours, I noticed the recording software starting to like freeze up and I'm losing stuff. Uh oh. And, you know, I zoom in and it's like not being responsive. So I'm like, man, I'm sorry, guys. I don't know what's going on here. And then I realized that it's 32 bit Windows 10. Oh, no. How did you do that? I don't know. I'm surprised that even exists anymore. Yeah, no kidding, right? Who does this? So, oh, now now I've got, you know, I got to remove takes that we didn't use and try to find stuff and the band's sitting around like, what's the matter, Franklin, you know? Anyway. Right, yeah, they're waiting for you now, which is never good. Yeah, so I had to go ahead and upgrade, reinstall, essentially, Windows to uh, 64. And so this is the first podcast we're recording with after going to 64. Awesome. All right. Well, I hope we'll it works. See how it goes. I hope it works. We already had a couple of mess ups. All right. But uh, so there's the drama. Well, speaking of drama, uh, I have something dramatic, slightly dramatic, maybe melodramatic for Better Know Framework. So roll the crazy music. All right, dude, what do you got? Microsoft, the musical. Oh, yeah. I love this. Yeah. It was uh, over 100 employees of Microsoft got together. It's and mostly interns. I think the in, it was a group of interns that drove this. That's thing. right. Yeah. A lot of it was in uh, the latest round of interns, like this year. Yeah. And so they did this kind of, uh, you know, show tunes thing about Bill Gates. And they did pick on Vista and Windows Phone. But things like the Zune weren't mentioned. I guess that's like old guy gaff. <laughs> You know, <laughs> not millennial gaff. But it, it's actually a really positive message. I mean, it is yeah. interesting. This is like a recruiting video for interns by interns. Right, right. That's funny. But it's pretty funny. It is funny. And, you know, go ahead and check it out. We'll leave the link up there at 1653.pwop.me. Uh, awesome. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1256, which you've done with one Lily Dart. Back in February of 2016, that was a show we recorded at NDC London. It was a while ago, and it was about user research. Yeah. And uh, lots of comments on this show, actually. But one of them is from Paul Michaels, who says, During the show, a brief discussion popped up about colorblindness, particularly Mm. red-green colorblindness. Yep. I'm sure there is a huge spectrum in this field, but my own experience of colorblindness as a red-green colorblind person is not with starkly contrasting colors such as traffic lights, but more on a snooker table. Oh, because you think a snooker table's green, right? And then you've got a bunch of red balls, and then you've got a variety of other colored balls, right? And he goes on to say, where the light is poor and the shades of color are similar, that's when red and green and brown can all look very similar. Mm. Another good example of one time that I played Laser Quest, you know, the game where you wear the little chess piece and you have a, a quote unquote laser gun and you're oh, shooting yeah. people. He says, with the lights dimmed, I couldn't tell the difference between the two sides. Oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, he's, there's a common theme here. It's like, how much light did he have? Like, how clear could he, could he actually see right. uh, those things? So, you know, I, 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 wonder, I almost wonder if red-green blindness is a misnomer. It's just a reducibility to see it and and discriminate with it. But, it, you know, seeing color is an interesting thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, And Paul goes on to say, I also wanted to comment on the aspect of focus groups. One thing that's always concerned me about this kind of usability testing, and I'm not by any means involved in this in my day-to-day job, is that people either tell you what you want to hear when you ask or simply lie. Yeah, I I try and take a more positive spin on focus groups and say they're just trying to please. After all, you bought them lunch. Right. Right. But (laughs) yeah, either way, it it sort of colors the... uh, the, the material every time. And so he says, I was pleased to hear Lily almost dismiss the, uh, the subject comments. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it's true. 
if you put people in that situation, they're going, it affects the outcome so dramatically. It's better. And, and that's what I loved about the show that we did with Lily was this mm -hmm. is where she was watching people use the app. It wasn't actually using the app. It was watching their facial expressions. Right. Sort of the real behavior rather than the sort of focus group behavior. And uh, that to me is super compelling. Well, the first time, I don't know if I mentioned this in the show, I can't remember, but the first time I heard about the red, green, common uh, crossover thing, is uh, I had I used to belong to this community chorus and we had a choir director who was would rehearse us and he'd play the piano and he came in one day with one red sock and one green sock and nice. a, and and a friend of mine who was clearly a lot smarter and older than me said that's really funny and I said why he said because red and green is a very common color set that colorblind people tend to mix up. And now I'm wondering if the guy was colorblind or if he did that on purpose. Right. Was some, it a Christmas thing, red and green, or did he think they were black socks? That's a good question. I don't know. I can't remember. I was eight or nine. Right. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Yeah. And there are, you know, there's the three different color receptors in the eye, but there's also uh, the occasional rare uh, genetic uh, mutant that has four different color receptors in the eye. Wow. Even and it's not that they can see more colors; that they can discriminate the differences between colors even closer. That is so cool. Sounds it's, like a geek out. It gets oh, and it gets weirder. Wait till we start talking about the mantis shrimp, and it's got even more iris. Oh, I know about the mantis shrimp. Yeah, that's <laughs> we'll true. Let that would go. So, Paul, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you were to write a comment there and I read it on the show, you'll get a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet and uh, just stop singing, please. The song wasn't so bad. The dancing, eh, it was pretty good. The whole thing was pretty good. It was amusing. Yes, I, I did watch. You know, when it's ten minutes long. Yeah, right. And so as soon as it came, as soon as I found it, I started. I'm like, well, there's no way I'm making it the way through it. But I watched the whole thing. <laughs> and that surprised me. You know, that you not that easy to keep my attention for ten minutes. Squirrel. All right. Well, you know, we're we're waiting patiently for somebody to do .NET Rocks the musical. But until then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be me. Let's say that. Uh, let's bring on Lily. Lily Dart is head of design systems for Lloyd's Banking Group. Before Lloyd's, she was working to transform government as the design director for the Department of International Trade. Lily's worked as a front-end developer, designer, researcher, and product lead over the course of her career. She combines technical knowledge with user-focused design and research methodologies to help organizations solve difficult problems and deliver more for their users. Welcome back to the show, Lily. Thank you very much for having me back. I can't believe 2016. That was, uh, I don't even remember what 2016 looked like or felt like. <laughs> I mean, a little, it was February. I think we recorded in January. So three and a half years. It sounds like you've done a bunch of things in that time. Uh, yeah, I've done a few things. I went to the Department of International Trade, and that was just at the beginning of Brexit. Um, I didn't mean to be there in a government department at the beginning of Brexit doing Brexit work, but yes, um, I managed it somehow. Um, so I did two years of that, and that was pretty intense. And uh, and now I'm I'm doing design systems. I've been doing two years of design systems at the biggest bank in the UK. Um, so yeah, it's it's been it's quite different to the last time I spoke to you, and I believe I was still freelancing and kind of wandering around doing nice short contracts. From freelancing to government work, I don't think there's a bigger contrast. Yeah, right. Much. Well, I was freelancing in government, so there you, you know, I, I kind of I'd done a lot of government work before. Um, actually, it's it's more of a um, it's more unusual that I've, I've actually gone into banking because for a long time I said um, it was soul sucking and I wouldn't do it, um, and it turns out that actually everyone's very nice. Uh, and they paid me quite well. <laughs> you, you were surprised. I was surprised. I was like, yes, I will have your well-paid job. Why, thank you. Yeah, right. A well-paid job with nice people. What more could anyone hope for? I know, right? I know. It's crazy. It's awesome. Well, this topic, sympathy versus empathy, I'm really curious as to what is going on here. So I guess we're just going to let you introduce the topic. Sure. Well, so this came about when I was speaking to someone from an organization that shall not be named. And they were telling me in very excited tones about how they had an empathy pop-up lab. 
And what that meant to them was that they were going to do a kind of little roadshow around different parts of their business with some stuff that might help people to be more empathetic. So Mm -hmm. they might have goggles that would uh, help you to understand what it might be like to have cataracts, or they might have gloves that restrict your range of movement. And so you might then work, feel what it's like to have some kind of physical disability. Um, Uh And there's a series of tools like that, that we've been using to help people to understand what different uh, disabilities might mean in reality Mm. for a few years now. They've been around for a while, but this concept of empathy labs is, is newer. And the the thing that really captured me about this was not that they were doing it because I think, you know, it's an important, piece of insight for anyone who is designing or developing but that when I asked them about the diversity in their teams in terms of actually representing some of these lived experiences you know I asked them what their strategy was around that because to me it's a much more important piece of the puzzle um and uh, their answer was uh yeah well we're going to think about that later huh. <laughs> out of sight um, out of mind Outside, out of mind, absolutely. And, and genuinely, they felt that by, by running these empathy labs, these empathy pop-ups, that they would, in fact, be able to, in some meaningful way, replace um, diversity in their teams. And it's not the first time that I have, I've heard this, uh, and, and, and it drives me a little bit loopy. And, and that's where I think, for me, it comes into these three categories. We talk about empathy a lot, and we bucket everything into empathy. But actually... An empathy lab doesn't really create empathy. I think it creates sympathy. You know, if you haven't lived with a disability, then putting on a pair of goggles for 20 minutes is not going to help you to understand what it is like to exist with that disability. It's Mm, not going to give you true empathy for someone's situation, right? Um, It's going to give you sympathy. It's going to make you go, oh, wow, that's actually a lot harder than I thought it was. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's got to be the actually spending a day, you know, waking up, seeing that way and trying to make a meal seeing that way right like the, 20 minutes in a lab is just not going to walk you through all those challenges and and just that sense of this is every day absolutely absolutely you know and i think you know when, if you have a disability um then then the world is systematically against you right it's not designed for you and and even the idea that you know, being able to take the goggles on and off is for, for most people with disabilities, you know, that is not something that they can do. And, you know, it's not that you're suddenly looking at a computer screen and going, oh, wow, everything looks really blurry. Mm. It's actually that everything looks like that to you all the time. Um, you right. know, it's not an abnormal thing for you. And, and all of these things are things, you know, that if you really understood them or you understood something related to them, you would be talking about empathy. But actually, in most of these cases, what we're talking about is sympathy. Um, and, and I think there's kind of three grades of this, right? So there's sympathy and there's empathy, and then there's actually lived experience. And that's where diversity in teams becomes really important because, you know, it, on the scale of sympathy to lived experience, lived experience is the stuff that really gives you insight into people and how they may be experiencing things. So it's an interesting thing that I keep on seeing people confuse because they talk about empathy, they mean sympathy, and they kind of miss out the bit about lived experience, Right. where right. actually that's a really critical thing that we need to be baking into our teams to make sure they understand the kind of diverse range of users that we are delivering things to. So do you, uh, I don't know, make them use your software with, you know, uh, as it is to, to get a sense of how bad it is uh, so that they feel bad for, uh, you know, the people that are using it. I mean, how does it manifest itself usually? Yeah. So I think like there's nothing wrong with sympathy. I think it's really important if you are, you know, a, a privileged white person who has not lived with a disability, it's important that we you know, expose you. If you're in the driving seat as a designer or a developer, it's important that we expose you to these kinds of experiences to to help you to see that actually the the experience for example you've created is hideous and you know maybe you should think better and more broadly about the people you're serving um you know but equally we need to be thinking about well how are we representing these these three groups of things in our team so we've got some sympathy that's great we've got to work to make sure everyone in our in our team is sympathetic towards different situations we need some empathy and you know empathy is really created when uh, you have lived experience, but not directly related to the thing that you're talking about. 
Um, so, for example, I have lived experience from being an ambulatory wheelchair user. So that means that um, when I was younger, I was in a wheelchair for a while, but I could stand up and I could walk around. I just couldn't you know, uh, do that for very long distances. So in between those bits, I was in a wheelchair. And that means that I still can't really understand what it's like to be in a wheelchair nine to five every day, you know, every day of the week, every moment of the day, right? I, I can't understand that because I could stand up. I could walk up a couple of steps if I needed to. Right. But it also means there are lots of things in that experience which I can, you know, be more empathetic uh, towards people who do have that lived experience. You know, I understand what it's like to have people look at you funny or not look at you, not address you if you're in a wheelchair. Right, right. Um, I, I understand elements of that experience, right? So, so through that, I can be empathetic towards that situation because I, I have something in my real life that I can relate to it. Um, and that is also part of what we want to be building in our teams, right? We want to think about the diversity of their experience and, and how we they may be able to relate or not relate to, to other people in our mm. customers and users that they are servicing. Um, and then really, most importantly, we want to make sure that people have got lived experience. You know, if everyone in our team is male and white and middle class, then actually the best we're ever going to get out of that team is sympathy um, and no real empathy and no real lived experience to be able to contribute into, into the mix, into the design mix, into the development mix, into the product mix. And what I hear people talking about at the moment is, is you know, what they call empathy, which is actually sympathy. And not very much thinking about actually how do we really represent our users um, not just diversity for the sake of diversity because there's a lot of people who know that they need to be divert more diverse but don't really understand why you know they know that they don't uh, have enough women at their conferences or they don't have enough women of color at their conferences or they don't have enough queer representation you know they know that this is a problem but they don't really understand why and the answer is often because actually you don't have that lived experience in your um, in your immediate area, and hence you probably aren't serving people in the way that you should be. Hmm. Yeah. Do we need to make a clear definition of sympathy and empathy, like the how people get confused between the two? Yeah, I, I think that's a I think that's a good question. I think that it, it is a bit of a fuzzy line, like. You know, I, I think it, it's always going to be, you know, can I claim empathy is the question, I think. You know, and it's it's one, as a designer, uh, everyone wants to say that they are the most empathetic designer and that they work hard to be empathetic. It is a badge of pride, right, to be able to say that you are an empathetic designer. Um, and, and I think part of what we need to do as designers, as product people, is also to be a little bit um, humble about our experiences. Uh, you know, I, I cannot possibly understand the experiences of a woman of color because I'm not a woman of color. And I probably right. don't have anything in my life that will relate to that, right? Uh, and I don't hear people being open and honest enough about that. So I think defining empathy can be tricky in that sense because we all want to say, well, of course we can empathize. Of course we can understand someone else's opinion, um, uh, experiences, lived experiences. Uh, but in reality, I think often we don't have the framework for it. And often worse than that, we don't even have the framework to know that we have the, we don't have the framework, if that makes sense. So, so empathy obviously being, oh, I've had that experience. I can relate. And sympathy being, oh, that sounds terrible. We should talk to you about your needs some more or yeah, forget think, about it. <laughs> no, I, I think that's almost it. So, so sympathy, yes, absolutely. That's about saying, I can see now that your experiences must be really tough and I want to support you better in that. But I don't really have a framework for understanding it. Yeah, yeah. That's so sympathy, right? it sounds like that you've had some interactions and meetings with with uh, people not being heard because of their diversity, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think that is uh, anyone who has uh, a diverse background. I think that's pretty much their lived experience, right? You know, I think it is very tricky to make sure that everyone has an equal voice in all conversations. 
And it takes a lot of hard work from uh, a, an organization if you're working. Uh, it takes a lot of com cultural commitment. And, and I think that is why things like the, the empathy labs in place of diversity or in place of thinking about how you can make the most of the voices that you already have is so concerning because it comes from a, a headspace that we can just accept the people we already have in the industry, the majoritively white male groups that we already have in the industry, and we can kind of just like show them some stuff and, and make it better for them to design and deliver for a wide range of people. So what's a Rather better solution than Empathy Labs for um, bringing about empathy on behalf of the team? So I, I think you can bring about sympathy on behalf of people who don't have a framework to experience those things. But I don't think you can bring about empathy. Hmm. I, I think you have to make sure that you have more than one voice, more than two voices, more than three voices contributing towards your decisions. I, I think uh, research is an excellent place to start, obviously, and that's what we were talking about last time in 2016. You know, how, how do we do the research that we need to, to be able to really understand our customers? And that is an important thing, but also it's difficult to interpret that research in a way that is realistic if you are only from one background, uh, if you only have one set of experiences, you will miss things that other people don't see. And in fact, there was a post about this recently there was an article saying that um it is now believed that the reason that 9-11 happened was because there was not enough diversity in the cia teams who were looking after it you know they they saw this man they saw osama bin laden they saw him in a cave and they did not think that he was a threat. They could not imagine that he was a threat. And what, he, what they missed were all of the religious overtones that actually made him very powerful within his country. And, and that was because they had almost primarily white male middle class people working for them. And that is what the report now says. So even though they had the research and even though they had the insight in front of them, they actually couldn't interpreted in a way that was meaningful because they did not have the diversity of experience within their teams to be able to do so. You know, so I think that is the conversation we need to, to keep on having. It's about, do we have those, or do we have, if we have the voices already, are they being heard? And if we don't have the voices in our teams to provide that kind of depth and variety of experience, then how do we get them there? Um, but again, I also think it is about being humble and acknowledging that actually we can't we can't do it all. You know, right. we cannot then the experiences of everyone, and we need to go out of our way to to seek to understand them and represent them. What about bringing people in from those communities to um, to talk to the team? Is that going to do anything? I think it depends on how your team approaches. It's a, it's a great question, but uh, you know, I think it does depend on on how on how it's approached. You know, I, I know that when I walk around saying things like, "You have a team full of white middle class men, and that might be a problem for diversity," that I am risking a bad reaction, and I know that often certain groups will have a bad reaction to saying to me saying things like that. Yeah. Right? Maybe um, if you frame it in terms of bottom line, you know, that's something that everybody can understand. And it really does affect your bottom line because your your software is going to suffer. Your usership is going to be subpar. And that mm -hmm. means that, uh, uh, it, you know, it uh, ends with less dollars, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that is always um, you know, a, a useful place to bring it back to um but there's also a lot of uh, there's a lot of very entrenched feeling around this right it, it's very emotional for people it's very emotional to hear that you know particularly if you take a designer that they may not be able to be empathetic they may not be able to be representative you know people have based their whole careers around being able to do this um and you know and this is you know, my concern one I, I don't see much humility in the industry and particularly in design, you know, I don't see many people going, actually, we can't understand this without, you know, this, this group of voices. Um, and, and I think we have to really, you know, lean into the idea that we have to go out of our way to find those voices. Yes, we can you know, absolutely bring people in to talk. 
Um, and, you know, I think sometimes that will be received well and sometimes it will make a real difference to the way yeah. that people see those groups. Sure. Um, and sometimes it won't, right? Because sometimes people are really entrenched in these opinions. Uh, you know, uh, maybe they feel it, uh, they're being attacked for just being who they are, right? Yeah. And that's a common absolutely. reaction when you talk about diversity. And I think it's a pretty universal reaction as well, right? Like, you know, oh, I think sure. those of us from minority groups are um, feeling pretty attacked. And then when we speak to majority groups about, about you know, our experiences day to day, the majority groups feel attacked too. Yeah. You know, it, it's very easy to get into a kind of standoff stance right. in that situation. Um, right. But, you know, we've got to keep on talking about it, even though it's uncomfortable. Sure do. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with being a little uncomfortable too. Like that's what right. complacency looks like is when you're not uncomfortable about anything. If you're trying to build a piece of software, that is inherently an uncomfortable process. Mm. If, it, if it was all sorted out, it would already be done. It's not all sorted out. Right. Uh, and, and Lily, I'm going to interrupt for one moment here for this very important message. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're going to be hosting the .NET Developer Days Conference in Warsaw, Poland, October 23rd through the 25th. Developer Days is one of the largest events in Central and Eastern Europe dedicated to application development on the .NET platform. And we'll be recording a number of shows from the conference and hanging out with you. So go to developerdays.pl and get your tickets now. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Richard Campbell. There's Carl Franklin. Hello. We're talking to Lily Dart about uh, sympathy and empathy in software. And in, I think you implied this in the first half, Carl, but let's say it more explicitly about is it more important to build a diverse team in building your product or do you simply have to involve a diversity of people in the testing or utilization of the software? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, for me, I think the, mo the single most important thing you can do is build a diverse team because even in the best reality that we have where you are doing usability testing once a month, maybe even once every two weeks, right? In an agile environment, that means you are making design decisions, development decisions every single day, you know, and, and often deploying them as well. But you're only actually putting it in front of people, maybe if you are very lucky, twice a month. And even then, you're probably only putting it in front of like five people. So you're not really representing your audience there either. I mean, that being said, there's no perfectly diverse team. I, I can't imagine. You're still going to have gaps in your diversity in some 100%. respect. But I think I think for me that's you know uh, having a having a good solid level of diversity is is for me the, the difference between you know empathy and lived experience right because you're right you're not going to be able to cover all lived experiences in that team but if you have a team with a broad range of lived experience you are more likely that in in a situation where they will be able to have true empathy for what their users or customers might be experiencing at any given time you know when you limit yourself to one or two you know groups of lived experience then your the likelihood that anyone in your team is going to be able to be truly empathetic for anything outside of their worldview is is pretty slim um so you know i, I think it's really being out being uh, it's really about being able to say actually no we can't 100 say that we understand what our customers are experiencing of course we can't but actually you know, I'm working with Billy and he is a gay man and hence maybe he understands better the experiences of the, you know, teenager, the queer teenagers that we have on our website. You know, maybe he's more likely to have a, a set of lived experiences that are closer to theirs and hence he can be more empathetic about that. Uh, whereas if I only have straight white men, it's going to be trickier to get them to really understand what those queer 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 kids may be going through, um, you know, that we are dealing with as customers day to day. You know, it occurs to me is sometimes it comes down to not only, you know, a social group or a lifestyle or whatever the diversity is, but also technology. Um, you, you know, if you, if you're talking about, uh, young kids, you have to hit them where they live and, you know, they don't live on Facebook. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another example that occurs to me about technology is uh, the classic um, in the early days of Microsoft, you know, testing everything on their local networks. Right. And everything's fast and zippy. And yeah. then we get 
you know, out in the wild back, and I'm thinking back in the 90s when we had dial-up, and, and things are just completely slow and crawling. Um, or, you know, just making assumptions about the, the technological resources that your customers have. is it, It's the same thing, right? I mean, we don't do that now. So uh, it's just another barrier to a user using your software. And Absolutely. it's just now gone into the realm of the, the social group. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, and it's, it, you know, one of the other things that, that I, I see quite a lot, even from people who are well-meaning, I mean, you know, I work for, for Lloyds Bank in the UK now, and we do quite a lot of work on how can we really understand how we can make our customers better off rather than, you know, take money from them. How can we make sure we keep money in their pockets, right? Um, and when we talk about low income groups, one of the things I hear most often is people going, well, you know, we really just need to stop them from buying that extra coffee at Starbucks. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 what? And, Somebody said that out loud. Oh, multiple people have said that to me out loud. You know, and, and I can, I'm sure, like, I'm sure we, we've all unempathetically thought this at one point. Right. Um, but you know, that there, that is their real um, the real way that they understand the the lived experiences of low income groups is that actually they're just out of control of their money, and if they were more in control, it would all be okay. You know, there is no empathy around. Well, actually, what happens if you're living in poverty every day? Well, if you're living in poverty, you actually lose IQ points because it is so stressful, right? You're asking people to worry about whether or not they're getting an extra Starbucks coffee, and they aren't even able to think about tomorrow yet because there are so many things on their mind. You know, wow, so great example. If, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it's incredible because we don't have, you know, as a bank, actually, we have very few people who come from low-income backgrounds, and that's, you know, one of the things that I'm discussing with our team at the moment is, is there something that we can do to make sure that we, um, you know, because we don't see many of those people in tech. You know, I, I've got a couple of friends who do come from quite low-income backgrounds, and, and they often feel quite out, out of place. And, I, you know, and I don't, and I don't, I can't have any true empathy for, for what that experience has been like, but I do want other people around me to be able to, you know, help inform and guide my hand. You know, even if I go to uh, use research and, and, and I sit in front of someone who is low income and I listen to them talk, it's very easy for me to, filter that information through my own experiences and my own prejudices. Um, sure. you know, and, and the way to get around that is by having someone near me that is a part of my team who goes, actually, Lily, don't be such an idiot about this. You know, yeah. Actually, I think, I think you're hitting two different pieces here that are wildly important. One is that the empathy of your software design of, have we looked at a diversity of people using it? But the other is di the diversity in your team keeps that diverse thinking in your head Absolutely. that it's it, that's what's always there so it becomes part of your routine to think about diversity as long as you don't have it in your team it's not pressing on you all the time it's an external thing rather than a quote lived experience spot on that is a very beautiful eloquent presentation of why i'm saying yes <laughs> that's my friend that richard <laughs> but it, I think, you know, one part of me is thinking, well, how can I ever build this diverse team that can answer all those questions? Like, well, that's not the point, right? Yeah. The fact is you build a diverse team so that diversity simply is a heartbeat inside of that team. And then you can look at your software and say, where are we missing uh, out on certain uh, diverse viewpoints? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, and I think that sense of it being a heartbeat is absolutely perfect. You know, it's that, you know, we were talking earlier about what happens if you bring someone in and they start talking about diversity or they start talking about their lived experience. But it's actually, you know, that, that sense that you might bring someone in and it might be an uncomfortable conversation, that, un that, that level of discomfort doesn't happen in teams that are already diverse because they're already talking right. about. Sure. They had they spent enough time, and I think there's no way around this except time, to the point where yeah. that so-called uncomfortable conversation isn't uncomfortable anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least you embrace the discomfort, right? I think sure. that's maybe that's maybe the difference. I think a lot of people there are a lot of uh, you know well-meaning 
guys in tech who will come to me and go, you know, I don't know that I'm doing this right and I want to be more inclusive and I want to be more diverse, but oh, it's making me feel really uncomfortable and I think that I've messed it up. You know, and and actually I usually say, well, if it's not feeling uncomfortable, it's not working and you're not doing it properly, right? It, it's got to feel uncomfortable. But I think the difference is when you're a bit more experienced at kind of addressing some of these issues, you embrace the the discomfort. You know, you, you have that moment of going, I feel like that's pointed at me and it hurts. And you go, okay, if it hurts, that means that probably I do have that prejudice or probably I have had that behavior. Um, you know, and if it hurts and it's working, it means you're actually addressing some of the the prejudices and problems that you have underlying in your own psyche. Um, I, you know. I, I, I don't mean to equate this the same, but I want to equate this the same as a similar experience of take a, building a DevOps practice inside of an organization. Part of that is letting people publicly fail. Like when things go wrong, we talk about them. And that is a very uncomfortable process for some organizations. But they yeah. keep doing it until it's never going to be fun, but you actually get good at it. Yes. That it, yes. And, and plus you create this safe place to have this conversation. So, I mean, I got to think that part of building a device, diverse team is sticking your foot in it once in a while, is saying the wrong thing. Yeah. But then a Absolutely. mechanism that repairs that, where we do, we do acknowledge when we've said things wrong and, or done things wrong and then apologize and get better at it. We do this all the time in other um, milieus, right? In in work and in technology, all the time. This is this is just the way it goes. You know, you you make a mistake, you fix it, and you move on. I mean, we're we're already used to doing this as developers. We're already used to feeling uncomfortable. In fact, like like you said, I put it another way: if I don't feel like I have no idea what I'm doing at least once a day, I'm not learning anything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, besides just recruiting to build a better team, like what are the mechanisms? You, you've led this conversation off with like empathy training is not a, a particular effect. You can't stop there. I, I, I got to hope that empathy training is not actually worthless. It's just like that's only the beginning. Like, How do you get better at this? Yeah, I, I, so I think um, so you're right. Empathy training is definitely not it's not worthless. It's important. It's important that people have access to you know, undo, understand more about the experiences of other people because, you know, that understanding, that sympathy is still critical. I think, you know, the main thing we need to be gearing towards is really about our hiring practices. And, you know, some of that is about thinking carefully about the standards that we think that we're hiring to because very often we use standards as an excuse to not hire people who don't look like us. Um, but I think also when you have people in the team, you know, we've talked a lot about creating safe spaces and safe spaces to be able to fail. And actually, I think very often the problem with our safe spaces is that they are geared towards majority groups. They are geared towards what feels safe for majority groups. And actually when a, uh, a minority group, um, you know, someone from a more diverse background fails within that context, they are hit harder than than the you know, than the people who are already in a safer position. So I think the really hard work we have to do to to make sure that we don't have more um, women, people of color, you know, come into our industry and leave, which happens on an exceedingly regular basis. Yes. Um, you know, it's not that we don't have these people coming through the pipeline. We do have not, not enough of them. We have some, but they come and they leave. Um, you know, I think the real hard work that we need to be doing is about making sure that the safe spaces that we create are safe for them, mm. you know, and not just safe for us as white folks, uh, not just safe for men, not just safe for uh, straight folks, right? Like we need to be making space for disabled voices and queer voices and, you know, voices of people of color. Um, and and right now, you know, our, even when we talk about failure, I mean, something like DevOps, I think is, is a great um, you know, is a great example is that when you have a culture that accepts failure, it's always individuals, right? It's always the decision of the social group as to whether or not yes. a failure is acceptable um, or not. You know, it's kind of that um, you know, joint myth that you all build together. And when you only have a certain type of person building that myth, then it's really easy for you know someone who kind of doesn't fit with that body type or lived experience to, to fall outside of that and, and to be punished unfairly, um, even though it seems to be a safe space. So so that for me is really about making sure you have people um, from diverse backgrounds with diverse lived experiences in leadership. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and that is an easier thing to do when you are not worried about whether or not someone is specifically in tech or whether or not someone is specifically a designer. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the idea that it's really hard to find senior women uh, designers for leadership. But actually, if you had a senior admin person who could be a woman and you put them on your leadership team, that is already the voice of a different group you know, if you've got an all-male team. Can, can you give us some examples from your experience of um, uh, problems that uh, were, were sort of blind, we, uh, teams were blind to, and uh, when pointed out by, uh, you know, or, or uh, diversity was embraced, uh, they fixed the problem? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the one of my favorite ones to talk about was we were working for um, a housing association. So uh, everyone, so they had they had two bits of um, two bits of their business. One of which was government funded housing, um, and one bit which was shared housing. So slightly different audiences. We, we were working with the government funded housing portion, and we were trying to work out why there was this bug that was occurring where people couldn't access their accounts. So, so we built a system where they could log on, access their accounts, see what rent was due. Um, you know, most of which was usually paid for by the government, but not always um, see if they had any other charges on their account and so on and so forth. So it was a pretty you know, critical piece of uh, infrastructure for them. Um, and we had this, this one persistent bug that kept on getting being reported and we could not replicate it. We could not replicate it. We could not work out what was happening. Um, and eventually I think we, we actually went to someone's house to try and find out what was going on to, to see if we could um, see them replicate it. And they were, accessing the internet through the browser on their xbox because that was the only browser that they had access to right um, they had that connection but it was that or you know they had a very old phone um so it was all through their xbox and the reason we couldn't replicate it was because we had this you know weird ass uh, browser that was some version of a microsoft something or other on the xbox um, and we obviously were not testing in it um, you know, and that for me, um, you know, there was a whole kind of set of things around that that we learned, um, you know, and we dedicated ourselves to spending a lot more time mm. with, with the actual people using our service in, in that instance. But the whole load of things around that that we learned that, um, you know, were about how people were accessing things. You know, a, a lot of those folks were only accessing stuff on their mobile phone because they did not have access to a desktop. You know, their internet was very unstable. Um, you know, the, there was a lot of day-to-day things that just would have never occurred to me and didn't occur to me. And even you know, when the problems kept on cropping up, they did not occur to anyone in the team because we were all from fairly well-off backgrounds. Um, you know, so if I would, if I was replicating that project again, actually what I would have done is, is probably put together a, um, uh, you know, if I did not have someone in my team um, who was from a low-income background and could understand some of those experiences, I probably would have put together a panel of customers um, to meet with us regularly and paid them for their time um, to be able to, to help us out on some of those things. Um, but more regularly than user research, you know, more like, actually, you are now a subject matter expert and you are going to come and sit with us on the team as we design these things. Um, you know, which is, is another way that you can uh, you know, address some of these problems. But you know, it, it's really about dedicating that person's time in um, to make sure that it, it's not just a check-in once a month. Yeah, the challenge there is actually thinking diversely enough to even know who to recruit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a, a very good point. But I also think that there's not... I don't know. I think it, it's not a big step, right? If we look at most teams, it, it's not like they have, you know, it's not like there are, there's a, there's a, uh, start that again. if we look at most teams, it, it it's not like they already have a decent baseline of diversity in them, right? Most right. of the time is, you know, certainly the last 10 years in my career, 
on a very frequent basis, I have been the only woman in the team. Um, you know, mm. and I'm a white woman. Granted, I'm queer and disabled, but you know, that's people don't know that when they hire me, they find that out later. You know, I am uh, I am not actually the most diverse representation, and and often I'm the only one. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's a big, we're not talking about a big step right here. We're not talking about going from you have all men to suddenly you have everyone and it looks like a Benetton ad. You know, we are saying actually you've got to go and actively go out of your comfort zone to hire people that don't look like you and don't think like you. And probably it's going to take a few years for you to get your team to the place that it should be. But if you're not doing it, then you're not doing your job properly. And and I would say that, you know, don't think like you is really important and it it may it may have less to do with you know race creed color sexual orientation and it may have to do with language it may have to do with um technological uh disability that that kind of thing you know um blind well, and, people and to the earlier point or income level or income level right yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think things like income level are often, you know, that they aren't necessarily to do with things like race, but they are also often to do with things like race. You know, and I think um, they are they are overlooked as as important pieces of diversity. You know, um, the, the the social class or standing that, that we think people have is often overlooked and it is important. Um, but I also just really wouldn't underestimate the idea that actually trying to get your team looking like a Benetton ad, it's not a bad idea. Right? It's not a bad idea. Yeah. That's great. It's a good place to start. Yep. Yeah. I, I see no downside to that, actually. Exactly. Right. That except that it takes longer to recruit. Like it, it, it is more effort to to recruit a diverse team, especially when your team's not very diverse. Like at the beginning of that is probably the hardest time. Absolutely, and you know I think that's a really good point. You know, going back to what I said about making sure you have people in leadership positions, visible people who are from diverse backgrounds. You know, one of the things that you know people from diverse backgrounds look for when they are looking to a new company is what does the leadership look like? You know, and if it is all um, uh, you know, a single color or it is all a single gender, um, you know, then that is an indication to those folks that it's probably not a safe place to be. Right. right. You know, so it, it's people do their research, and I think you know often it's underestimated. You know, I have lots of companies that come to me and go, "Oh, I don't understand why I can't hire any women." And I'm like, "Well, it's because you know you're all guys, and it's all guys saying guy things, mm. and women are not sure about what kind of environment they're going to walk into. You know, when on the first day on the job, they they don't necessarily want to be." Um, you know the the icebreaker that gets to experience all of the um, bringing people up to speed with making a safe space. You know, right, sure. I, I've spent a lot of my career doing that, but lots of people don't want to because it's not a very safe place to be. It's also not very productive. No. No. You actually, uh, odds are, you had other goals for your career than educating a, a monoculture right. about some diversity and safe spaces. <laughs> I, I actually want to work on something else. Uh, you're quite right you're quite right to and, you know, i think a, a lot of a lot of us who are um you know women particularly women of culture do get um of color sorry do get pigeonholed you know if they start doing public speaking they get pigeonholed very quickly into could you sit on this panel about diversity you know um you know, and, uh, you know we, we've done enough women in tech shows that i really don't even want to do another like i think it's all been said now just go live it Hmm. Well, I think we've done a lot of white women in tech shows, right? That's and, interesting. And, interesting point. Yeah, I, I think you know, and and I'm I'm sure, absolutely certain, I've been guilty of this in the past, um, and probably yeah. still to this day, right? There is a lot of representation for white women in tech now. Still not enough, you know, for us to have fifty fifty um, diversity, and that is a problem. But actually, we still now as white women, we often you know take the uh, take the air of women of color who could be saying and probably are saying something much more interesting than we are yeah um you know so th there is a level of mindfulness for for all of us involved here I think. let's just call it diversity in tech and leave it at that that's sure. a good call sure. yeah uh lily any resources you point people at that are that are struggling with this or want to be better at it yeah good question i think my my kind of standard go-to baby step is there is a gendered um, job 
uh, the gendered language um, checker for job ads um, written by my friend Kat, who is awesome. Um, so if you search for uh, gendered uh, language checker for job ads, it'll come up in Google. And what that That's catmadfield.com, the gender decoder for job ads. Perfect. Yes. Mm. Well done. Um, so uh, if you paste your job ad into that, it'll give you a sense of the kind of language that you're using as to whether or not you are being overly gendered in what you say. So you know, I love you it. Yeah. Like, High performing, then actually a lot of um, you know, women are turned off by that because they don't want to be in overly competitive environments. Not all, but some. Um, and so there are quite a good kind of set of little prompts there to help you think about the the way you're describing your environment um, and also just how other people may read the things that you're saying. It's a really good starting point. Kind of that aren't you. <laughs> that aren't you exactly right exactly right um but i think in general my my biggest resource for this is twitter um and the thing that i recommend to everyone is that they get onto twitter and they follow a bunch of people that don't look like them and when they have that urge to get angry at those people for saying something that makes them uncomfortable they shut their mouth and they listen mm. and they carry on listening um, you know, and, and I make it a point to have as many different groups and voices on Twitter as I can do. And it's still, you know, yes, I'm a woman and I am queer and I'm disabled, but it still gets me sometimes, you know, uh, a woman of color will say something about white feminism and that will upset me because I am white <laughs> and I push through it and keep on trying to learn from that rather than kind of sticking my oar in and, and creating a problem. And that's yeah. been one of my biggest uh, single ways to learn about other people outside of work and outside of trying to kind of create that culture. But it, it's a great space to just hear people talk about what is upsetting them and hear people talk about their lived experiences. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's my, that's my kind of big resource beyond that. I think there's lots of, there's lots of stuff around about how do you create a safe space and, you know, how do you make sure that you are improving your pipeline? You know, there's lots of advice around this. I think the reason that it doesn't land with people often is because they're not really listening to other people's voices. And I think Twitter is a great place to start with that, to actually sit and listen. So maybe listen to that for a couple of months, then go and look at that guidance again and see whether or not you, your opinion is changed on it or the way that you approach it might be different. Very good. Lily, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Oh, good question. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. So I'm doing some talks this year on design systems. Um, I have been running a design system at Lloyd's Banking Group. So you know, this is the hot new thing in the industry that everyone is talking about. And I am now having spent a year kind of getting my my head into the problem and actually building and releasing something internally in, in Lloyd's. I'm now popping my head out and starting to talk about uh, my experiences a little bit more. So you will see me around. They've not all been officially uh, noticed yet, but you will see me around a few conferences in the UK talking about those experiences. And it would be great if there's any listeners uh, who can come and then mm. come and say hello to me. Great. Awesome. Great to talk to you again, Lily. Really lovely to speak to you guys too. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.